Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey friends, and welcome to episode 495. I don't know if you're counting, but we're getting really close to 500 episodes. I can't believe it. We're gonna have a big party. But today is episode 495. And I have a great guest on the show today. It's Dr. Angela Gorell, who is a professor in Waco, Texas. Go Bears. Uh, We talk about that. But Dr. Angela Gorell released a book called The Gravity of Joy, a story of being lost and found. And Lindsay, my coworker here, podcast producer, told me about this book last year that her and friends in her book club had read and she loved it. And so I had the joy and the privilege of interviewing Angela on this episode. And we talked about this book, you know, early on in her book, it she has a line in there that says my vocation was supposed to be joy and I was speaking at funerals. So she talks about joy and sorrow and loss. I also want to let you know in this conversation, we talk about opioid addiction and suicide. So I just want to let you know both of those are in the show. I read this book earlier in the year and devoured it. I loved it. I loved it so, so much. And it was just full of stories and I couldn't stop reading. So check it out if you're looking for a new read. You guys, also two things to tell you before we jump in. Number one, if you missed any of our shows already in May, we had a four-part series all about foster care. Uh, May is National Foster Care Month, and we had some great conversations with foster parents, with a foster adoptive mom, with a birth mom, with a former foster child. So you want to go back and listen to those. If you want to find all of them in one spot, go to jamieivy.com slash foster care. One thing I want to remind you as well is, do you subscribe to our newsletter? Because... We have some fun announcements happening in the next couple of weeks, and you do not want to miss any of them. To subscribe is super easy. Go to jamieivy.com slash newsletter. All right, y'all. Here is my conversation with Angela. Hey, Angela. Welcome to the happy hour. Thank you so much for having me. Hi. This is exciting to have you on here. Now, for all of our non-Texas people, and I don't believe you're from Texas either, Angela. I'm going to let everyone know. Angela's in Waco right now, which is just a hot hop, skip and a jump up from Austin. And so I feel like we're close and we're not, but we're kind of (laughs) close. Yes, we are. We are close enough for sure to be able to just, you know, hang out on the weekend, that sort of thing. Yeah, totally, totally could. Well, Angela, I'm really excited to be um, chatting with you today and have you on the podcast. Um, I wanted to tell you how I found out about you, if that's okay. I just will do that real quick. So um, your book, I believe this is your second book that I have. Is that correct? Okay. So your second book is called The Gravity of Joy, A Story of Being Lost and Found. It came to me February of 2021. Okay. So that's when it came across my desk. When did it release? March, 2021. Yeah. Okay. So I got it right before. And it's um, people that listen know that I have a thing for book covers and I love your book cover. It's very eye-catching, all the things. And so I immediately put it on my, I have all these shelves in my office and some of them are like upcoming interviews or some of them are just like study books. And some of them are just, I want to read this book because I've never heard of this person, but I'm very intrigued and I'm very interested. And that's where your book went. And I was so excited. Well, I want to tell you, I never got to it, but my friend and coworker, Lindsay, read your book with the book club and she would tell me all about it. And so I'm very happy to have you because I have listened to you read this book to me and it is a a really great project that you should be really proud of. So thank you for writing this and for coming on. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks to you and to Lindsay and to the whole book club. And um, yeah, I'm so grateful. All right. Well, tell everyone what you do in Waco, Texas. 
I am a professor at Baylor University. Go Bears. Uh, That's what you're supposed yeah, to say right there. Go yeah, Bears. Sick and Bears. And it's super sad that the men lost out in the tournament, but we're still pulling for others. Um, yeah, so I'm a professor at Baylor and I teach um, in the areas of like Christian education and formation. And so my classes, I, I joke that I also, so I, I prepare people who are going to nurture communities of all different kinds. And um, I also do classes that, you know, about the stuff that keeps us awake at night. So my class this semester is called Jesus and the Meaning of Life. <laughs> well, and that's so. only one semester long. I'm telling you, this is like a year <laughs> long class. I mean, a year, a journey through our whole life class is what it could be. Yeah, no, I know. It's just in 14 weeks, we figure it all out. It's great. <laughs> well, I think I should audit that class so that I can figure out what's going on with the world. Um, now, are you at Baylor technically or at Truett? Um, I have taught undergraduates one semester. Okay. And so, and it could be that I'll teach some undergrads um, for the, you know, for the larger university um, at some point again, but I am housed, yes, at Truett Seminary. So I mostly teach master's students. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. My brother-in-law got his master's degree from Truett Seminary. Oh, cool. That's yes. great. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Angela, I picked up your book, The Gravity of Joy, um, a story of being lost and found. And I didn't know what to expect, honestly, and I got way more than I ever could have expected, um, to be honest as well. Um, joy is this thing that we talk about, especially in Christian worlds, that sometimes feels like we should have it. Um, it also sometimes feels completely unattainable, and it also sometimes feels right in front of our eyes. And so it's so complex, and you wrote this book about it, and Early on in the book, you said, my vocation was supposed to be joy, and I was speaking at funerals. And um, I knew when I read that sentence that this book was not going to be what I expected it to be. So I'd like you to give us a little, give us a little backstory before we jump into talking about joy. Talk about um, your, your work that you had just signed up to do, and then what happened in the next four weeks um, in 2017. Yeah. So, well, it, so it start March 2016. I was hired at Yale to, I got the call, you know, I was about to finish my doctorate at Fuller Seminary and they were like, hey, we want you to come and be a part of our research team. And my job was going to be to investigate joy and teach a class called Life Worth Living at Yale University. And I was totally elated because I was like, not only can I pay rent, which is awesome, <laughs> right. <laughs> not only am I gonna be able to have like a savings account, um, because I was a poor PhD student, um, but I'm also going to get to do this incredible work of studying joy. Mm. This is amazing. And um, I remember that fall that I'm just stoked every single day to be at work and connecting with all these scholars who are coming to participate with us. And so, and the people that we invited oftentimes would kind of, it was 2016. I don't know if we all remember, but that was a hard year. We have a vague States. memory of what was happening in the fall of 2016. Yes, yes. So it was a pretty difficult time. And so when we would invite people to come, they would be like, Joy, really? Like this year, you know, mm -hmm. aren't there more important things that you could be studying kind of, kind of thing? But I would always defend it. And I'd be like, no, but this is important. And we're going to tell you why when we think more about this, you know, and I was just reading everything I could get my hands on about it. And then um, um, one week before Christmas, eight months into the project, I got a call and was told that one of my family members died at 30 by suicide. And nothing has ever, no, no phone call has ever literally like, it like sent me to my knees 
in the parking lot. I was in the parking lot of a church actually when I got the call. Um, I had been hanging out with youth, like volunteering, <laughs> and um, just punch in the gut. And the next week was the hardest week of my life. Mm. Um, wildly painful for my family. I I had I cried every hour of every day of that week. Mm. It was so so heart wrenching. It was awful. And I got back to Yale, and I remember thinking, like, I don't know how my family is going to recover from this or get even get on the road to healing. And then two weeks later, my nephew died suddenly at 22. And I found myself by my oldest sister's side with all my other siblings, like trying to comfort her and grieve my nephew. Mm -hmm. And then got back to New Haven, Connecticut, where Yale is um, on a Sunday. Two days later, I get a message that my dad is in the emergency room fighting for his life. I get on a plane, three planes to be exact, about 24 hours later. Um, and five days after my nephew's funeral, my dad died. And I spent the last five hours of my dad's life with him. His liver and kidneys shut down after about 12 years of opioid use. Mm. I spoke at all of their uh, funerals. And um, so in four weeks, I lost three people I loved. And I get back to New Haven and I'm like, it's my job to study joy and to teach about the life worth living. I don't know how I'm going to do this. So much. I mean, I remember reading it and just feeling such intense sorrow for you. And I never met you. I'm just reading this, like the story unfolding in a book. You say in here, you talk in depth about joy being the counter agent to despair. And you were walking through so much despair in those four weeks. And then you had to go back and, and study and learn I guess, you know, the most loaded question here is how does joy become that counter agent to despair in our lives? And, and I think I'd love to hear you talk about everything you just said is massive. And I have personally never walked through death of a loved one by suicide. I've never walked through the death of a 20 year old sudden death or, uh, or someone addicted to drugs. And so those feel kind of distant for me personally, that's your real life. Mm -hmm. but I have a long list that I could share of despair. Yeah, and so yeah. what, what did you learn in your studying and just even in your conversations with other people about how joy co combats that? Because honestly, Angela, here's my question for you is like in those moments, I don't want to go look for joy. Uh, I want to sit in my sorrow and just cry and be alone and not worry about it. So how did you find the joy? How did you go look for it? What does it look like for us in our everyday life? Yeah. Yeah, so I wrote this book for a few different reasons. And one was because I wanted other people who had gone through similar suffering, whether specific, like, you know, other people who had actually experienced the death, like of, of a loved one to suicide, mm -hmm. sudden death, you know, of a young person or opioid use or some other kind of addiction. I wanted people, but, but like a lot of people have experienced other kind of suffering that's also really, really deep and difficult. And I just wanted people who have experienced suffering to feel less alone in their mm -hmm. grief, um, less strange for feeling. Um, I mean, I'm very honest in the first four chapters of my book about the fear and the anger that became all consuming in mm -hmm. my life. Um, it is this this book is an honest look at grief. The first half of it, I, I always tell people my book reads like a psalm. 
you know, and anybody who has ever read a Psalm in the Bible in the old Testament, like if you quit in the middle, you're going to be pretty sad. Right. Psalms, you know what I mean? Like they, cause they start out like super honest about fear and anger mm-hmm. and lament, but you know, but then there's an arc to them and there's an arc to this book. And so I wanted readers to feel what I felt mm. and in doing that to, to both feel seen in their suffering, but also to really resonate with me on like the longing for joy. And mm. I think when you get to the middle of my book, you're like longing for your for joy. You're saying like, is this coming at some point? Mm. <laughs> um, you know, and that is how I felt. So it wasn't like I woke up the day after my dad's funeral or a week later and I was like, okay, let's go back to study and joy. This is fun. For a year and five months, it was a deeply difficult um, thing to go to work, mm. to put on clothes every single day and to just get out of bed and to keep going. Um, And it wasn't until a year and five months after my dad's death that I said yes, that I surrendered to this very strange invitation that things began to shift for me. And that's that I became a volunteer chaplain at a women's maximum security prison. And you meet these women in chapter five of my book. And um, it was these women and the circle that I sat in with them that absolutely changed my life. It Um, I I compare it oftentimes to like the friends of the paralytic man who took him to Jesus. Like they were, I was the person on the mat who felt um, metaphorically like paralyzed in my life. Like Mm -hmm. I couldn't go forward with the same faith that I had, like the truth of my life experience confronted particular beliefs that I had and I couldn't hold both. Mm -hmm. I couldn't hold my former beliefs about how God worked or Mm -hmm. about suffering and its place in the world and the truth of my life experience at the same time. Mm. And so it created this moment of disorientation for me where where I just felt like I couldn't move forward in my work, in my ministry, in my teaching about this, like about Jesus and about being a Christian, all this stuff. And so, but these women were like my friends who took me to Jesus and they reignited this love of like prayer for me, Mm. of surrender they made me believe again that God can like that 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 in Christ like dead things come back to life, that broken things can be report, repaired, that like what is lost can mm-hmm. be found. You know, it was these women who did this for me, and I really I went into that prison empty, and I left with a very full heart and a new perspective on the world, as God would have it, um, as. <laughs> um, I was given the women, I was assigned to the building with women on suicide watch. And it was there there in this dirty, unkept, like uncared for room with women who had been through significant loss themselves. Um, and for them, like cycles of abuse and poverty and neglect. And it was with these women that I began to say, okay, what might our research, like if joy has something to offer the world, if indeed, as Alexander Schmemann says, that joy is the tonality of Christianity, if it's how it sounds or how it's supposed to sound is Mm -hmm. joy, like what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And so I began doggedly like trying to understand um, joy as like what, like joy's place in a, in a suffering world. And, and, and so the more that I, I witnessed um, what was happening in this space. And the more I reflected what I realized, and especially on like even different biblical texts is that joy has this mysterious capacity 
to live in very close like proximity to sorrow. It can share space, it can share air with sorrow. Mm -hmm. And so the beautiful thing about the gift of joy is that joy, you don't betray your grief by allowing joy in. That's so good, Angela. And then also joy is a work of resist, joy is a counter agent to despair because it's a work of resistance against despair. Mm. Despair wants to say, there is no, like meaning has been lost. Mm -hmm. There is no truth to be found. Um, the world is not beautiful. People are not good. And you're disconnected and alone. That's mm -hmm. what despair wants to tell you. Joy says no. Mm -hmm. Joy is the very being and presence of God ministering to us. And mm -hmm. so joy says, you know what? There is always, always meaning to be found. There is truth about you and about the world. And the truth is it is beautiful and God made it and you good. And you absolutely can feel connected to other people again. You will not always feel the way that you do. Mm. Like despair does not win. Joy does. God does. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. I loved you talking about your time in the prison and I myself spent a couple of years volunteering at a county jail and, and, and I was moved and changed and learned so much in that time. I find it interesting that you said that you were assigned this area of the prison where women were on suicide watch. And, um, I, I, I had somehow forgotten that in the book, but you did say that a lot of times they weren't allowed to go out for their walk or or go into the rec area, but they could come to your Bible study. And so they would come to your Bible study. And I just find it, I don't know, is the word interesting that you went into a prison filled with women who you would label as living in despair. A, they're in prison. B, they could be having suicidal thoughts, which according to your book and research, a lot of people are. 
And it was in that place that you found joy. That's really, <laughs> really interesting to me. I mean, because yeah. it was exact opposite of what you would think, because I would assume you were, you had a church, you were working. And for some reason, the community that heals you so much was the most unlikely community to heal you so much in that area. Right. And, and so on the one hand, you hear all of that, that you just say, said, and think that is wild and um, totally unbelievable or remarkable or whatever word you might put in there. You know, on the other hand, you look at our, the Christian faith and you say, well, God, we meet God in a manger Mm -hmm. and we meet him on a cross and in an empty tomb like these unexpected places is like always where God shows up. And also it is in the places where we are like most vulnerable, where we are willing, like there, there is something to the times in our life when we feel most, I I get fragile, Mm -hmm. um, but all, but become most open that God, comes in and and is able to help us to see God's always seeking us. Mm -hmm. God always loves us. Right. But it's in those sorts of moments where I think we're especially attuned to God's presence and we get to notice it and we Mm -hmm. get to have our eyes opened and recognize it, you know? Mm. Um, And so I'm not, it's like, on the one hand, I was surprised by what happened on the other, as I reflect on the Christian tradition and our faith, I'm like, of course, God, you do stuff like this, you know, of course. Um, <laughs> you know, as you, and as you, you know, and you, as you see in the gravity of joy, it wasn't all like joy, mm-hmm. right. In that room, a lot of very hard things happened in that room. And I described some of those hard things. And these women were indeed like really struggling with their mental and emotional health. And many of them had experienced hell on earth mm-hmm. uh, many times over. I mean, they had devastating past and histories at the same time, these were women who were saying, you know, who were longing for restoration, who were, who were longing like for renewal, for, um, for God to come in and to do something different and new in their lives. And so, um, and so they were hungry. And mm-hmm. when we're hungry and we're coming to get, you know, like, so not on one, they, these women were hungry. Number two, this was a circle where there was no shame. Mm-hmm. And where everybody could be totally honest about their feelings and about what they were experiencing and who they were. And when you create community like that, where people are hungry to like sense God's presence, to connect with each other, to care for each other, and where they're and, and where it's a space of mm-hmm. that's shame-free of compassion and listening and honesty, God can do really beautiful things in those kinds of spaces. Didn't one of the, and I'm sorry, I don't have this written down, but didn't one of the people that you interviewed who had lost a loved one to suicide say, if I think you asked them, like, what do you wish uh, people would have could know or do more to prevent this? And didn't they say safe community to ask questions? I I did ask a woman who had lost her younger sister to suicide. Um, I asked her, you know, what was the most helpful thing that people did for you? And I also, I asked, um, another, a man, a father, like, so this was a sister Uh and I asked the father. So I asked in my interview, I asked like all the people I I found my, my graduate assistant joy and that's her name, which is so I love that so much. Yes. 
So my graduate assistant at the time, Joy, and I love her, I adore her, Joy um, found people that had also lost loved ones to suicide or addiction, and we interviewed them about their experiences, and we inter like we interweaved, integrated the, their stories in with my story and the women in prison stories and all this stuff. Um, and so always the last question we asked them was, what did people do for you that was the most helpful in your grief? And um, each one in their own way. So I think David said, um, whose daughter died um, uh, due to opioids at 16, um, he said that the most helpful thing was he went to an AA meeting because he himself was sober, um, is sober. And he just like people just like sat with him and mm -hmm. witnessed his pain and just held space for his grief and didn't try to fix it or anything. They just like were with him. And that mm -hmm. was so beautiful. Right. And then. Um, Carly, she said, um, Madison Holleran's older sister, she said that people continued long after, like in the months and years following Madison's death, different people have checked in on her consistently to just say like, hey, I still see you. I know that this might be, you know, must still bringing up stuff for you. Like, hey, I want, you know, if you want to talk about Madison, like, I want to hear what you have to say, you know, just like, they just always remembered, mm -hmm. and they helped keep her alive, like her memory. Yeah. And my sister says the same thing about her son, Mason, like, she loves when people ask her about him, like, help me keep him alive. Mm -hmm. You know, give me, give me time, like, she loves to talk about him. Yeah, yeah, I think that um, is something yeah. that people are maybe afraid of, because they think they're going to hurt someone. Mm -hmm. And I had a woman a long time ago, tell me she had lost her husband. Um, in a tragic accident. And she said, I love when people ask me about him because it means we all remember. Yeah. And I was just listening to the part in your book um, recently where you were talking about that, the people who remember. And and I and I had a thought and I, I, I started to feel a little shameful, like, Jamie, have you walked through hard things with people and then forgotten them? And, and I, I didn't want to live in that shame, but I was reminded of I have a handful of people that I have walked continuously with them through hard things over the years and, and followed back up and asked about it. And I think I wanted to say as an encouragement to listeners is that's not going to be everyone's role in every situation. You know, like you may have one person that you continuously walk through years later and that's your role in that, in that, in that situation, in that life. And, and, and what happens in that in that opportunity for you to love them and minister to them? Okay, you, you talk a lot in here about um, addiction and death by suicide. Yeah, um, your father struggled with addiction. Uh, you had a loved one uh, die by suicide, and you you say in here you felt compelled to help people see that overdose and suicide are not moral failures. And I think that is a beautiful conversation because. For the people who have experienced that within their families, um, it feels really hard to kind of sit with that sometimes. And then you've got people looking into your family and and maybe kind of judging that. Where did you land on that and what did you define them as? Yeah, it's really important to me. I think um, the language that we use to talk about both of these things, because one, they're incredibly pervasive in the United States, like right now, like suicide rates and death by opioids are both like soaring, especially um, since the pandemic began. It was already a really huge problem in the four years prior to the pandemic, but also um, it's like soared even more this mm -hmm. last year and a half. And so um, I think it's important to realize that probably more people around you than you realize have been impacted by one or both of these things, 
or they themselves are struggling with, with one or both of these things. Um, they're often integrated, like oftentimes we become addicted to substances because we're trying to deal with pain that we don't know how to deal with otherwise. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, with suicide, I think it's really important for people to realize that there's usually like three things that come together that, um, and Thomas Joyner talks about that in his book, um, Why People Die by Suicide, that make it possible for someone to attempt suicide. And I think when we understand these things, it creates more empathy. And like one is just a history of that makes it like makes death less and less scary to you, mm. um, whether that's because you've had a history of like abuse or you've been, um, you know, or any number of other things I could go into. But the, but the more important too, because he says that history can always be dealt with in therapy, but it's not even like the most important part of the trifecta. The other two things that make it possible for someone to attempt suicide um, are the feeling that they've become a burden on other people and their life no matter lo, no longer matters. Mm. Um, and the other is that they feel um, like they're alone mm. and that people, they can see other people, but they like can't connect with them and other people don't really see them. And so it's these three things that come together that make it possible for someone to think, consider like taking their own life. Mm. And so um, like, it's important the way we talk about these things and, and, and even in just describing that trifecta or talking about addictions, connection to pain, hopefully what listeners are hearing is this is related. These are health crises. Mm. These are mental health crises. This is not a moral failure. These, all of this is related to pain in our lives, feelings of profound loneliness, uh, feel, oftentimes we feel like our life, when we think our life has become a burden on other people or it doesn't matter, it's because we feel like we've failed massively in some way and we mm -hmm. can't recover or we don't know who we are. We have, have an identity crisis, you know? And so when you think about all of these things together, I mean, these are sources of real pain in people's mm -hmm. lives. So suicidal thinking and addiction are not things that we need prisons and just mental health hospitals for. We need communities of people who surround others and say, hey, like this is like, think about our Christian faith, you know, like Jamie, it's like, there's so much to offer people here. Like we can say, hey, you might feel lonely, mm. but you're not alone. Right. You might think I can't see you, but I do, mm. I see you. And you might think that you have failed and you can't recover, but you can. Mm. Like there is forgiveness and you can forgive yourself and you can recover yourself, you know, or you might feel lost, but you can like start again, you mm. know, and you can change your mind and you can do new things. And, you know, and so, um, and then for, for both people who are addicted to substances or who are, are experiencing suicidal thinking, we can say to them, there are sources of pain that you're trying to numb or escape from and I want to help you work through that pain, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so they're really and, and then uh, and the last thing I'll say is just like, I think it's important not only that we, we notice these things as health crises rather than moral failures, but that we talk about them in such a way that we we maintain the dignity of people who are experiencing these things. That's and good. when we say when we say things like committed suicide, mm -hmm. what we automatically do is associate this person is like, when we say commit something, we're saying that like you did this and, you know, and it's, it, it automatically has a negative connotation, 
But to say die by suicide, it changes and shifts like how we think about it, which is important. That was one of the biggest lessons I learned when inter- when I was interviewing a woman who her husband had died by suicide. She explained that to me and I thought, wow, I'd never heard that before. And I'm a grown woman who is not living under a rock in the, you know, yeah. uh, and I never heard that before. And so yeah. I, I'm really grateful that you did that. I'd like to ask you on the flip side of that, you know, you talk about um, suicide here, like we've said that, but you also talk about addiction and um, the opioid crisis and I've heard about the crisis through the news. I interviewed somebody on other podcasts about it. You know, I've watched Dope Sick. It all is very removed from me. Personally, I've already told you that. And so you just did a great job of talking about how do we dignify and our language matters with suicide. What does it look like for that when talking about someone who died from addiction or died from an overdose? How, how do we honor someone in that way still with talking about the tragedy of what's happening in our country in America that is overtaking so many people's lives in this crisis that we're seeing. Yeah. Well, I I think first it's important to realize that most people who become addicted to opioids in particular um, do it by accident. Like, um, you know, or a lot of people do. I don't know if I should say most, I should say a lot Um, because they are prescribed opioids for a a, a real pain, a, a real physical pain that they have. But then, and oftentimes for chronic pain, you know, but, but then what happens is that um, opioids are highly addictive drugs. And so when they're trying, and, and also opioids are very comforting and euphoric. Mm. And so from, you know, as I understand it, um, I'm a, I really can't do oxycodone or anything like that. It makes me uh, nauseous and like, I can't handle it. So I've never, but it's been described to me by people who have um, like, who appreciate opioids and like them, that it gives you a warm, happy feeling. Um, and um, Trevor Henderson, Nashville's opioid response coordinator, or he used to be, um, Trevor told me once um, that when he asked uh, people that he was working with who were trying in recovery, um, what opioids did for them, he said that um, they told them that it made, that opioids made them feel loved. Golly. And so, um, and then he asked me, like, when we were talking on the phone, I was doing an interview for this book with him. He said, how do we compete with a drug that makes yeah. people feel loved? That's <laughs> you know, what so I was I just think thinking. What happens, yeah. yeah, this underlying problem to be known and seen and loved is what we're all come to earth with, you know? Right. Yeah. Yes. And so, and then there's another, there's a guy, Andrew Sullivan, he wrote a really incredible article for the Atlantic at one point where he said, you can tell a lot about a culture by the drugs that people are addicted to mm. at the time. <laughs> and he's like, what does it say about like, I, and I guess Andrew, I'll, I'll put words in Andrew's mouth, but I think he would say something like, what, what would you, what does it say about a culture where people are addicted to a drug that makes them feel loved? That's a good um, question. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if we, if we can understand what opioids do for people, understand how they start using opioids um, and then, you know, and why it's so difficult to stop, um, then we can have more compassion for what people are experiencing. Um, like I said, you know, opioids really at the heart of them or at the heart of any addiction is really an attempt to numb pain. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think suicidal thinking is really an attempt to escape pain. Um, and like, you know, in the, like they're just like to get relief, relief from pain. Mm-hmm. Suicidal thinking, is, and well, I guess maybe at, at the heart of both, we could say that the intersection of both is like a real deep desire for relief from pain. Mm-hmm. And so I think that nurtures compassion. You know, I hope it does. Yeah. You know, you're talking here about um, 
it was called the happiness effect from researcher Donna Freitas. I don't want to mess up her name there. Um, the happiness effect. And she goes around college campuses talking about this. And it, it kind of ties into what you're just talking about, you know, with this desire to be known and seen and loved. And yet there's also this desire to make it look like everything's just good and happy and fine and everything's okay. How do you think that that, what she calls the happiness effect, how is that effect? How, how is that hurting not only just young people? I mean, you talked in here, I think I saw a stat that the majority of people who, um, correct me if I'm wrong, the majority of people who think about attempting suicide are younger, but the majority of people who do actually attempt, uh, who actually succeed in uh, death by suicide or 50 and older. Yeah. So uh, the highest rates of suicide um, among women are women between the ages of 45 and 55. And the highest rates for men are white men above uh, the age of 60. Right. Yeah. But didn't you say there's a lot of uh, suicide ideation in younger yeah. Oh yes, yeah, and so but high, but suicidal thinking is highest among ten to thirty year olds, and now Gosh. and suicidal think and suicidal thinking is now the second leading cause of death among young uh, young among people between ten and thirty years old. Um, um, it's second only to accidental death. Yeah. Jeez. So, mm -hmm. what is this um, happiness effect? How does it play into this whole conversation? Yeah. So, and you're right, she was studying college students, but really it impacts all of us mm -hmm. because it's about social media yeah. and living in a social media landscape. And we can't blame all of suicide and addiction on new media. Um, I think a lot of it, because it's uh, new media is not just new media itself, but it's how we relate to it and a lack of like education around it for all of us, the pace of life, because it's also work culture and how, you know, it's so many, it's a lack, uh, it's. Um, religious communities that struggle to connect with young people and to help them feel like um, that religion has something to offer them in the mm. midst of what they're going through. So it's so many different things. So it's not, I don't want the, people to walk away from this and think social media is our only problem. Like it's a whole, it's a cultural issue related to, I think, religion work and techno the technological mm -hmm. landscape that we really have to think about. Um, but the happiness effect is what she what she when she was interviewing college students, she was asking them about their experiences online and what she kept reading in every single interview when she went back over the data is she realized that young people were saying that they felt like they needed to appear at all times online as happy, successful and blissful as possible. And um, and so what what was happening was that they were because they were constantly seeing other people post how happy they were. They felt compelled to post how happy they were. Mm. They felt like, oh, everybody else is posting how happy and successful they are. So I need to do the same thing. But then as they would post and tell the world just how happy and successful they were, they felt actually avoid like they felt a distance between what they were saying online to everybody and how they actually felt and that made them feel even worse about their lives because mm -hmm. they felt and so that gave that that gave young people the sense that they were not being completely open about the actual like life that they were living and and that they were you know being fake and mm -hmm. for young people in an age of authenticity, like literally right. the number one thing that young people want today is to live authentically. Yeah. They want to be true to themselves. 
literally, we live in the, it's literally, it's called the age of authenticity by people who look at like, you know, at culture and the cultural moment. And so that is very important to young people today. I want to live authentically. I want to be true to myself. So when they feel like they're not living authentically at work, in a religious community, in a social media space, it makes them feel horrible. Mm for better or for worse, right? And so she was saying the happiness effect is terrible because one, we think that everybody else is happier than we are, which makes us feel bad about our lives. Two, we feel like we can only post that we're happy, which means we can never fail. We can never make mistakes. We can never live like an ordinary life. Like to be ordinary in this day and age is terrifying. Mm -hmm. You know, we're like, I want to be anything but ordinary. Right. You know, there's an extreme pressure to be extraordinary. And then three, I'm telling everybody I'm super happy when I'm actually not. Yep. All of that sucks. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. And so what we need is people like you and me, Jamie, who sit down with young people, um, youth and emerging adults, and also older adults, and say to them, you know what? Like, let's talk about this. Do you feel the pressure to be happy all the time mm-hmm. and to post and tell everybody how happy you are? You do? Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, how are you actually feeling? Oh, yeah. you're really, you're, really, you're angry? You're fearful? You're sad about stuff? Like really you're, you know, you're feeling insecure or any number of other things. Okay. Let's talk about that. Let's constructively work through our feelings. Let's be real with each other. Mm. Let's be vulnerable. And also let's, let's be subversive in a, in a new media culture, in a social media culture that says we need to do A, B, and C, like let's be subversive. What Mm. does it look like to work against that? And so the way that I do personally is that I invite young people and I do it myself is whenever I get into social media spaces, I try to find somebody to rejoice with and somebody to mourn with Mm. in a really intentional way. And so I am focused in digital spaces, not on how everybody like perceives me. I try to be focused primarily on how I'm seeing other people Mm. and saying, Oh, something amazing happened in your world. I rejoice with you over that. I am overjoyed with you. And I'm going to either DM them, I'm going to call them, I'm going to text them if we're really close, or I'm going to write a reply, not just an emoji, in a really intentional way, I'm going to rejoice with them. And similarly, I'm going to look for somebody that is mourning, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to, in a very intentional way, say, I am a witness to your pain. Mm That's beautiful. And that's like, you didn't give us the most drastic thing that we could do. You didn't tell us to change our accounts. You didn't tell us to shut it all down. No. You just said it's new media. And I've never heard someone call it that before, new media. Um, but it is, it's new that we are raising the first generation of kids who will never not have what we have um, yeah. as grown adults. You know, I, I found it interesting too, in you talking about her work that she said, actually, young people are struggling to even define happiness. And so it wasn't even like they're just trying to portray happiness. They don't even know what happiness is in the in the studies that she was doing. And I found that so interesting because it led to them just kind of looking around and seeing what am I supposed to be? Like, what is it supposed to look like to be happy? And then not having the ability to know what they were truly feeling. Like you said, like, let's open up a space. You're scared. You're fearful. You're afraid. You're you're sad. What does that look like? And it's hard when you don't feel like you have that safe place to do that. And yeah, it makes me sad for communities where that's not there. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. And happiness is an elusive concept for many of us, right? It's like, if I try to tell like, and happiness has no ceiling. It's really, and this is the thing for me as a theologian, you know, psychologists might distinguish between happiness and joy in different ways than I do. 
Um, but as a theologian, like as someone who like studies God and thinks about joy in, in um, especially in relationship to the Christian faith, mm-hmm. like I think that happiness, I really am drawn to um, Adam Potke. He's a literature professor. And he says that happiness became really popular in the 1800s as a word. So I think that's not that like long ago, mm-hmm. right? But yeah. in the 1800s is when we started using the word happiness a lot more. And he said, we use the word in relationship, we would look at the material conditions around us and use the word happiness to talk about it. So uh, we would look at how much money we have, how well we're doing at work, how much status we have, what our house is like. And we'd say, oh, I'm happy with Mm. the conditions of my life. And I wish everyone who's listening happiness today, you know, like I want you to like have enough money. I want you to have a house that you love, that you call a home. I hope you have work that's meaningful for you, Mm. but not all of us have those things at at all times. The gift of joy is that joy is not tied to particular kinds of conditions, especially not material conditions. Joy is a much more profound emotion. Joy, as I said earlier, is tied to meaning, truth, beauty, goodness, and our connection with other people. Um, And and so joy um, is this, and it's, it joy is the very being and presence of God ministering to us. Mm. So joy is very different from happiness. And so in a culture of like, that's, that's a gift that we have to offer people is to say, you know what, in a culture obsessed with happiness, like there's something far worthier to aim our lives toward. It is a gift of God. I mean, it is, and it is why we see Jesus be able to say that he went to the cross for the joy because it's more, it, it is deeper than just like what's happening in that current moment. Is that what you're saying by that? Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. And so it's way beyond, yeah, he said for the joy set before before me. Mm -hmm. So there is something about joy and that's the other thing. Happiness tends to be more about the present moment, whereas Mm -hmm. joy can be backward looking. I can actually think about a time when I experienced great joy in my life and feel it again. Like that's the gift. Joy is also forward looking like it was for Jesus when mm-hmm. for the joy set before him joy, we can rejoice in what ought to be, yeah, you know, and not just what is. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, joy. And so there's like the feeling of joy, there's joy as a virtue. Um, and then, you know, joy as like a thing that we're pursuing in our life, you know, mm-hmm. joy, and then um, joy is a fruit of the spirit, you know? Um, and so, yeah, joy is a gift in a way that I think, I think, whereas happiness tends to be elusive and we have no ceiling for it. Uh, I, I just think that, that joy is, is a more worthy thing to, to aim our lives toward and to be open for. Well, you know, I, think, that, yeah, yeah. I think that that was a really cool opportunity for you. Uh, I know it did not seem cool at the time. And so don't take that as a hard way for you to be in the midst of studying joy and having to walk through the most difficult season that you could potentially ever walk through from here until you go see Jesus. I'm, I'm not saying that it was, but I'm saying it potentially could be. Um, because I have a lot of trust in your words is what I mean by that is they have weight to them because you have, you are not coming to us talking about joy from, um, a life that has not seen great suffering. And so Angela, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'd love to hear what are you loving these days and what are you reading? Um, well, first, thank you. Thank you so much for reading my book, um, for having me on, for your awesome questions in this conversation. 
Um, what am I loving? Yes, one of the things I'm loving right now is um, Nulastin, N-U-L-A-S-T-I-N, Nulastin eye serum. Like you can put it on your eyelashes yes. or on your brows. Okay. And it helps with like hair growth. But basically, um, if you've ever like wanted eyelash extensions, it makes your own eyelashes naturally grow. I'm obsessed with it. I and love so much that. so that I like went to my optometrist the other day. And the woman helping me, like, um, you know, um, his assistant was like, I love your eyelash extensions. And I was like, oh, no, like, this is like my own from this. Yeah. So new last in I I love it. I love it. it. Um, And at almost 40, I'm very grateful for hair growth um, going on. Um, Another thing that I'm loving right now, well, I've been loving multiple binging uh, shows on Netflix. And one was like, Love is Blind. I did it, you know, I binged it a couple weeks ago. And I, you know, I think it could still use some work in like the kind of people that it um, cast. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I was really excited to see that there was more diversity this season. But more than anything, I feel like what I appreciate about the show is that it's a real honest look at like people's desire for love Mm -hmm. and like why we trip ourselves up and get in our own way. And just, I don't know, it's just so honest about the human experience, like of like, and desire, you know, which I love, I love that. It's been on Um, my list to watch for a while. So I'll have to dive into that. Okay. Yes. So loving that. Um, And um, what am I reading? I am reading a book called This Here Flesh Mm -hmm. by Cole Arthur Riley. Um, And um, it is, she's the um, creator of Black Liturgies, if anybody follows followed her on Instagram during Mm -hmm. the pandemic and her book is just filled with these short stories and reflections on liberation, on, um, on love, on redemption, on faith. Like it is beautiful. Mm -hmm. It is poetry and story combined. I love it so much. I feel like I'm with her. Um, Maya Angelou, I'm reading her book or listening to her read it. Um, um, I know why the cage bird sings. Um, I just really wanted to hear it in her own voice. Um, so I'm just, um, loving both of those. And then I'm every day I'm, um, this is, uh, you know, this is a different conversation, but I'm really, um, trying to work through, um, codependency, which Mm -hmm. is something in my own life. Um, it's like I said, a whole nother podcast, but, um, I have been listening to this book called the language of letting go by the woman who wrote codependent no more. And every single day there's like a meditation and like a Mm -hmm. word that she has for you that's helping you to work on on this issue. And so that's been a really healing thing for me. I love that. Such great book recommendations. We love book recommendations here at the Happy Hour. So Angela, thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys, her book, The Gravity of Joy, A Story of Being Lost and Found is worth every single page um, and minute that you might put into it. So thank you for your work. Thank you for coming on the show today and talking about this. And next time you're in Austin, we're going to have to meet for a real happy hour. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you so much to everyone who who, uh, gave their time to be with us today. Thank you so much for listening to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. We are truly grateful for every single story that we get to share with you, every encouragement we get to give you, and every opportunity we get to point all of us to Jesus. If you're loving this show, we would really appreciate it if you would leave us a rating and or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, tell your friends. That is the number one way that people find out about our show. It's because you tell them. Join us right here every Wednesday and Friday for meaningful conversations that will make us think, they'll make us laugh, and they'll always point us back to Jesus. And come find me other places on the internet as well. I love Instagram. I'm over there at Jamie Ivy. 
And if you've never visited my YouTube page, you're going to want to go there. Have you ever listened to a show and wondered, I wonder what they look like? Well, go find us over there. It's jamieivy.com slash YouTube. The Happy Hour is produced by Lindsay Sweeney. Show notes are written by Abigail Castell. Graphics are by Amaya Savoy Easton. The show is edited by Angie Elkins. And I'm your host every week, Jamie Ivey. And goodness gracious, I love being here with you guys. Until next time, have a happy hour with a friend.